In our culture today, there are many ways people show and identify as Christians. Some show it by what they wear. They wear t-shirts with crosses on them or Bible verses identifying that they are believers. Others have bumper stickers on their cars, having John 3.16 stickers on them, as well as an image of a fish. Some show it by what they say. In, in their social media posts, they may identify themselves as believers of Jesus or a follower of Christ. There are athletes, I'm sure you've seen, whether after winning a game in an interview, they may say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, showing that they identify with Christ. So there are many ways people show that they are Christians. But we know, especially nowadays, that this does not really prove that they are Christians after all, that they are true believers and followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, what does the Bible teach on this topic? A couple of weeks back, we looked at James, James chapter 2, And we considered the relationship between genuine faith and works. That a follower of Christ who has true genuine faith in him manifests it in works, in good works, in obedience to his word. And he gave two illustrations of that. Of Abraham, who was justified by faith, And his faith was vindicated in the fact that he obeyed God even to the point of offering his son on the altar as a sacrifice. And he gave a second illustration in Rahab. That in faith, she trusted in God, even risking our own life to protect the spies. And today we come to a passage where Jesus instructs us in what a disciple of his really looks like. He instructs us that a follower of Christ will be manifested by how they love one another. A follower of Christ will prioritize the glory of God, which will be displayed in the way we love one another. And a follower of God will humbly submit to God's revelation, fully trusting in Him, in His Word. And so let me read for us our text in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. John 13. 31 through 38. Verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. 
little children. I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. In this passage, I want us to consider three instructions, three priorities that show us what really marks a true disciple of Christ. Three instructions that show us what really marks a true disciple of Christ. Now in this text, these are not all commands, but based on what Jesus emphasizes, I think it is instructive for us to prioritize as his followers. So three instructions. First, Christians are to be consumed with the glory of God in the crucifixion. Secondly, Christians are to be committed to loving one another as Christ. Thirdly, Christians are to submit to God's revelation in humility. And we'll walk through these one by one. Now, before we consider our text, let me provide the context. As you know, we are going through the Upper Room Discourse over the summer. The series is titled, A Window into the Savior's Heart. And it covers chapters 13 to verse, uh, chapter 17. And a few weeks ago, we looked at Christ's humble love for his own. See, Jesus is Lord. He is Master. Yet in humility, he washed his disciples' feet. So that does that example was a reminder for us that if the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, humbles himself to the point of where he's serving his creatures, then we ought to follow his example in serving one another. We are to serve as Christ served us. This past Wednesday, we considered really the apostasy of Judas. He was one of his disciples in terms of following Jesus during the last three years of his ministry. He was externally committed to following Christ. But internally, it was clear he wasn't. He had the wrong motivation, the wrong intentions in following Christ. He loved money more than he loved the Lord. You see, such people are present in the visible church. They look part of the church. 
They know the truths of Scripture. They affirm the truths of Scripture. And to us, they may appear to be followers of Christ. But in their heart of hearts, they don't love God and they don't obey Him. They don't have a desire to obey Him. There's no pattern of obedience in their lives. And so Judas was exposed to be the betrayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our passage where we begin to see what a true disciple of Christ really looks like. What a true disciple of Christ looks like. And so let's begin by looking at the first instruction. And that is to be consumed with, the, with God's glory in the crucifixion. To be consumed with God's glory in the crucifixion. Verses 31 through 32. John writes, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Now, this is a transition point. Judas and Satan, who had entered him, has departed. Now Jesus is alone with his disciples. Remember now, this is the night before the crucifixion. He has a few moments with his disciples. And so he begins to instruct them. And this is indicated by the clause, when Judas had gone out. And so with this departure, the farewell discourse, you could say, really begins here. He begins to address his disciples. He gets personal with them. He's no longer throwing pearls before swines. He's teaching his disciples. He's showing him what is in his heart. And the first thing he says to them is, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And, and God is glorified in him. You see, glory is the focus of these two verses. It is found five times in these verses. So it's clear what is in God's heart. It is clear what, what Christ is seeking to emphasize. With the departure, he is concerned with the glory of Christ and the glory of God, which will transpire in a few hours. See, the departure of Judas set things in motion. And that is why he said, now is the Son of Man glorified. He, he referred to himself as the Son of Man. And this title goes all the way back to Daniel 7. It's a messianic title showing that, one, he is the long-awaited Messiah. Showing his humanity as well as his sovereign authority. And this word for glory entails honor and, and exaltation. It is the manifestation of, of splendor and, and majesty. Really, it has an idea of, of shining brightly. 
Jesus is saying, now my divine greatness will shine. It will shine brightly. He will be glorified and he will be exalted in the cross. The glory of Christ, the glory of God will shine the brightest in the crucifixion. That is the point he is making. In the same way the sun is the brightest at noon, God's glory will shine the brightest at the crucifixion. His greatness, his magnificence will be seen there. Now, how do we know that glory is referenced to the crucifixion, to the cross? It's because again and again throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus in the beginning would say the hour had not yet come. And then in the beginning of chapter 13, he says, now the hour had come. What does he mean by the hour? The hour when he would depart out of this world. And this departure would come through his death. So this glorification of Christ refers to the crucifixion. In a few hours, Jesus would be betrayed. He would be arrested. His disciples will flee. And he will be left alone. Peter will deny him three times. He will be falsely tried. He will be mocked. He would be beaten. And then he would be hung on a wooden cross. He would be crucified as a criminal. But before all of this happens, he wants his disciples to know and understand that what is going to happen is not my shame. It is my glory. It is my exaltation. It is not my humiliation. It will appear as if I'm being defeated from a human perspective. It will appear as if all is out of control. But it's not. In reality, it is the unfolding of God's glorious work. So you see, the cross is the glory of God. Why? Because Jesus speaks of it this way. says this is my glory this is my honor through the cross Jesus is accomplishing the father's will he's accomplishing God's purpose you see he came on a mission he was commissioned to come and accomplish God's will and he was going to accomplish it through the cross in John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. He came to do the Father's will, which was to redeem a people through the cross. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, at the cross, God is most glorified. Because at the cross, the consummation of his plan is accomplished. This is the fulfillment of the purpose for which he came. But not only is, is Jesus glorified, as we've seen, when he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, but also God the Father is glorified in the crucifixion. Notice what he says. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If Christ is glorified God also is glorified and honored and exalted in the crucifixion. How? Well, he's glorified because it is at the cross where we see God's attributes in display, on display. Through the cross, God's glorious nature is supremely seen. His greatness is seen. His majesty is seen. And let me just walk through a few of them for you, for us to consider and meditate and hopefully lead us to worship this great God. First, <clears throat> the crucifixion of our Lord. In the crucifixion of our Lord, we see God's wisdom and we see his power. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 24, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to both Jews and Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Look at the cross to see God's magnificent wisdom and power. Secondly, in the crucifixion, we see God's holiness. Never is God's holy hatred of sin revealed than in the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, the innocent one was hung on the tree because of God's holiness. Someone had to pay our sins. We couldn't do it. Thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ, he did. God provided a way. And in the cross, we see God's holiness. Thirdly, in the crucifixion, God's justice and righteousness is demonstrated. It is through the cross 
We can see, as Paul says in Romans 3.25, that God is just and the justifier of sinners. You see, if the cross never happens, and he lets even one enter his presence, then God is neither righteous nor is he just. But because of the cross, God shows his grace and mercy for sinners, at the same time upholding his justice and righteousness. So we see God's justice. We see his righteousness in the crucifixion. Lastly, in the crucifixion, we see God's love on display. His love. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At the cross, we see God's love. And friends, we can go on and on. We can go through God's attributes and see his greatness, his magnificent greatness seen at the cross. But the point is clear. The hour that was approaching was the hour of great glory. The cross is the glory of God. This is what Christ was concerned with. And this is what he wanted his disciples to understand. This is what he wants us to understand as well. For us to glory in the crucifixion. As we continue, Jesus makes one last statement concerning glory in verse 32. And it is about God glorifying the Son. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Since God is glorified in Christ, God, the Father, will glorify Christ. And this will happen immediately. Now the question is how? How is the Father going to glorify the Son. You see, Christ is glorified in the ascension. And this is what uh, Paul writes in Philippians. The Father glorifies the Son. Remember in chapter 2, Paul is giving an example of humility. And the, and the highest, greatest example he points to is Christ's incarnation and Christ's humiliation on the cross. And then in verse 9, he writes, For this reason also God highly exalted him, that is Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of the Father. And so what is Jesus teaching his disciples? He's teaching them and he's teaching us to look at the cross as glory. The cross is glorious. The cross is not shameful. There we see God's majesty. There we see God's splendor. 
There we see the greatness of God. And though it's not a command here, I think the implication is that we are to be consumed with the glory of God in the crucifixion. This was what Christ was concerned with. This is what he wanted his disciples to understand, and this is what he wants us to understand today. When was the last time you meditated on the glory of God? When was the last time you meditated on the glory of God in the crucifixion? When was the last time you considered the cross? Friends, we must think on these realities regularly. This should be our pattern. We should not just gloss over the reality that Christ came and he died on the cross. That is a message for the foolish. The message for us is that is God's great wisdom It is God's great glory. It is of utmost importance for us to be consumed with the glory of God. Jesus was concerned with this, and we ought to be as well. This should mark us. This should be our pattern. We should think on these things often. There's a second instruction here. That we find, and that is to be committed to loving one another as Christ. To be committed to loving one another as Christ. Now, I do want to point out the flow of, of this passage real quick. You see, this commandment to love, given in verse 34, is not disconnected with God's glory in the crucifixion. Because Christ loved us as seen in the cross, as we've seen as glorious. He now calls us, his disciples, to love one another. And so the glory in the cross is the foundation for our love for one another. They are linked. They are not disconnected. And before he gives the command, he emphasizes the glory of God. And before he gives his command, he also reminds them of his departure. Look at verse 33. He says, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I say also to you, where I am going you cannot come. Jesus calls them little children. This is the first and only time he refers to his disciples this way in the gospel. And it's really a term of endearment. You see, he wanted to communicate his care and affection for them, especially with the message of his departure, with the announcement of his departure. And Jesus proceeds to say, little children, I am with you a little while longer. In just a few hours, I will be departing from you. I won't be here with you physically. In a few hours, I'll be going to the cross. 
And then after the resurrection, I will ascend to the Father. So I won't be here for long. And so what I'm saying to you is important. You see, this was not easy for the disciples to understand. They've been with him for the last three years. They enjoyed the presence of the Lord. And to think that he would not be with them any longer, that's a hard pill to follow or swallow. And so it's difficult for them to understand. But because of his care, he was saying that this is not bad for you. It will be good for you, as we'll see later in the discourse. And this statement that he made was similar to a statement a few times that he made to the Jews, the Jewish leaders who had opposed him earlier in the gospel. And Jesus alludes to that here in verse 33, where he says, As I say to the Jews, now I say to you. He said, said it to them in John 7, 33. He says, Therefore, Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And he did again in John 8, 21 to the Jews. But you see, when he said it to the Jews, it was a message of judgment. Because they opposed the revelation of God, the revelation of who Jesus was, the revelation of the fact that he was sent by God. And so when he said to them, I am going and where I go, you cannot come, you will seek me and you will not find me, that was the message of judgment. But to the, Jew, uh, but to the disciples, that was not the case. In this context, it is not a message of judgment, but of hope and expectation. Unlike the Jews, Jesus did not say to the disciples that they will look for me and they will not find me. In fact, we know from chapter 14, as we'll see, that Jesus says, I will come for you. And later, he says that I will send a helper, the Holy Spirit. So this was a different message to the disciples, a message of comfort, a message of hope, a message of expectation. This was a good message. So he's trying to comfort them. But it was hard for them, really. It was hard for them to grasp that he was leaving. And now being 2,000 years removed, Sometimes in the way they respond, we're like, what are you guys doing? But you got to keep in mind, they love the Lord. And they had certain ideas that was not according to God's will that prevented them from really understanding. But we see that they fully understand later on. But now having announced his departure, he wants to lay out the expectations for them. He wants to tell them what he expects of them while he's gone. And that's 
what we see in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all, all men will see that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, in light of Jesus' departure, Jesus left his disciples a clear command to help guide them on their time on earth. And the command was to love one another. Now the emphasis of love is seen clearly. If you read those two verses again, you'll see that he mentions love four times. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we've seen God's glory being emphasized, and now we see love being emphasized. So what point do you think he's trying to make? What does he expect of his disciples? What does he expect of us? He expects us to love. He expects us to love one another. And he wants us to be committed to this while he is away. In the church age, disciples are to be marked by loving one another. But it's interesting how he says it. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How is this a new command? How is this a new command? I'm sure many of you are well versed in scriptures. But this is not a new command. We've seen it all throughout, all the way, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. We've seen this command to love one another in the Old Testament. So how is this a new command? For example, in Leviticus 19.18, it says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In the Gospels, even Jesus has made this command before. Remember the two greatest commandments when, when a man approached him and asked him what is the greatest commandment. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second great command is to love your neighbor as yourself. So this command has already been given. And this command has already been given by our Lord. But here he is saying this is a new command. How so? How is loving one another a new command? See, what made it new was not the actual command, but really what followed the command. Jesus said, love one another even as I have loved you. Even as I have loved you. See, God gave us a new standard. Christ gave us a new standard of love. We are to love as Christ loved. 
Before the standard was loving others as we love ourselves, which is very hard to do because we love ourselves too much. But now the standard is to love as Christ loved, which is even greater. Jesus is our standard in loving one another. You, say, you could say he's the goat of loving one another. You know, I grew up watching sports, playing sports. I love playing basketball. I love watching basketball. And when it comes to the NBA, every year or so, there's a debate that comes up, who is the goat? In my opinion, the goat is Jordan. Jordan is the goat. He's so great that even when we're talking about football, the question is, who is the Jordan of football? When we're talking about tennis, who is the Jordan of tennis? Jesus is the goat, greatest of all time. He is the greatest Example of loving one another, of loving others. He is our standard. And up to this point, this was not the standard because the crucifixion had not happened. Jesus showed his love by giving up his life. That is how he loved he loved us sacrificially. He gave his life so that we could live. And he is calling us to do the same, to love sacrificially. This is how we love. This is different from any other kind of love. Paul exhorted the church in Ephesus to love this way. He said in Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Friends, we are to love, and we are to love as Christ loved, which is we are to love sacrificially. And this type of love considers the best for the other person. Because Christ sacrificially loved us, we are reconciled to God. We benefit from that. And we are to love in the same manner. We are to be committed to this. And this should mark us as believers. And by the way, when we love each other in this way, it is a clear indication to the rest of the world that we are his disciples. John 13, verse 35, look at what Jesus says. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
See, when we love this way, this will be our testimony to the world that we are His, that we belong to Him. It's not just about what we say. Although that matters, it matters uh, the, the doctrines that you profess. But even more important than that, along with that, is how we love one another. How believers here love one another. That we sacrificially love one another. That we sacrifice our time, resources for others, for the benefit of others. In the same way Christ has loved us. See, Christ is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Let this be our testimony. This was a command Christ gave to his disciples hours before the crucifixion. And this is a command for us, that we are to be committed to loving one another. It is a simple command, but very difficult in practice. So ask yourself, is your priority to love one another? Do you love the church? How is that evident in your life? Do you consider other before, others before yourself? Is that a pattern? Ask those who are close to you. Is loving others evident in your life? What would your parents say? What would your siblings say? What would your friends say? Because this will show that you are His. This will show that you are His. So we must be committed to this. But unfortunately, the disciples did not fully pay attention to this at this moment. Because they were still thinking about the departure. And so Peter raised a question. And this interaction is instructive for us. And the instruction for us is to submit to God's revelation in humility. To submit to God's revelation. This is the third instruction. Verses 36 to 38. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Now it appears that that Peter has ignored verses 34 and, and 35 because he's thinking about verse 36, or 33. And so instead of asking questions about loving one another, he raises a question about the departure. He says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus kindly and graciously states the answer. If, if, if it was me, I would be like, dude, did you just ignore what I just said? That's not what Jesus does. 
and we see God's care, we see God's kindness, he says to Peter, where I go, you cannot follow me. And this time he adds, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. See, now, Peter, you cannot follow me to the cross. This is my journey. This is the will of my Father. I must go to the cross. But when I depart, I want you to focus on loving others, is what he's trying to get across to them. Peter responds in verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay my life for you. Peter did not like Jesus' answer. He was not satisfied with it. And that's why he said, why can I not follow you? And in the same way, Jesus, as the great shepherd said in John 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. Peter says, I will lay down my life for you, Lord. There's no question that Peter loved Christ. Peter was committed to Christ. He was devoted to Christ, unlike Judas. But we know that he was imperfect. And the reason why I think he was committed to him is because keep in mind the context for a second. Jesus as we saw last time, made a statement that shook everybody, that one of you will betray me. And the disciples responded by saying, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And we as the readers know that Judas was the betrayer. And we know that is why he left. But this was unclear for the disciples. They did not fully put it together. And so when Judas was dismissed, they thought he was leaving to buy something for the feast. So I think this was percolating in his mind. And he wanted to show his loyalty to Christ. And I think that's why he said, I will lay down my life for you. And, and I think he was serious because later on we see in the garden, when, when the, the soldiers come, he doesn't flee. He takes out his, takes, he takes out his sword and then attacks one of them. And say, even if he killed that one person, what is he going to do against an army of soldiers? He would likely die if that were the case. And so I think he's serious. But I think what the issue is here, the problem here, is that he was not willing to submit to God's will. He was not willing to submit to God's revelation of, of Christ going to the cross, of Christ departing. He was not okay with that. He had been with Christ. He loved to be with Christ. And the thought of him being apart from Christ did not sit well with him. He was thinking, how could that be good? And so in his pride, he thought, oh, that, that is not a good idea. And we've seen that before with Peter. And here we see again, 
He was not willing to submit to Christ's plan. He didn't like what he was hearing. And thus he made such a bold statement. I will lay down my life for you. And, And Jesus responds, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Truly, truly emphasizes certainty that it will certainly happen. This will certainly happen. And we see that it was fulfilled in John 18. Peter, in fact, did deny Christ before dawn. And this was because of his lack of submission to God's will. And God in his kindness was warning him. Instead of arguing with Jesus about his departure, what Peter should have done, what Peter should have said is, Lord, what would you have me do? I don't fully understand this. I don't fully want this to happen. But you are Lord. You are God. You know far better than I do. And you are good. And you are doing all things for your glory and for my good. And so even if I don't understand your plans at this moment, help me to submit. Help me to trust you. Help me to obey you. So this was his problem, I think. And this is a problem for many of us at times. Where we have a difficult time in submitting to God's will. God's revealed will in in the scriptures when we pursue sin, thinking it can't be that bad. But clearly in God's word, he commands us not to do certain things. This is a call for us to submit to God's revelation because he knows best. This is also seen when we have trouble with God's sovereignty over our lives. When life happens, when things aren't going the way we hoped, We begin to grumble. We may not say that we're grumbling against God, but in reality we are because we're grumbling against what's happening and thus grumbling against God's sovereignty. And so we find ourselves not submitting to God's will, especially when we don't want to, we don't understand why this is happening the way it is. And this happens to us as believers as well. And for you, if you're here and and you're not in Christ, listen, you're not submitting to God's will either. And submitting to Him in repentance and faith. It is God's kindness that He has brought you here. And He's calling you to repent and put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Don't be like the Jewish leaders 
who rejected Christ. Because we saw that his departure was judgment for them. And if you don't repent and if you die in your sins, you will face the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. And my plea to you is, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Submit to his word. And we serve a God who is gracious and compassionate. And all who turn to him in repentance, he will receive. <clears throat> and so we see from, from Peter's example, lack thereof, it's instructive for us to submit to God's revelation in humility. So in our text this morning, Jesus was teaching his disciples. Uh, he was sharing his heart. And from that, we find three instructions for us to, to pursue, to prioritize as we live our lives on earth as his disciples. We are to be consumed with the glory of God in the cross. Think about the cross. Meditate on the cross. Don't let days pass by where you have not considered the cross. Secondly, we are to be committed to loving one another in the way Christ loved us. Prioritize loving God's sheep. Prioritize loving the church. Using your gifts to serve the church for the edification of the body. And thirdly, we are to submit to God's revelation in humility. Trusting in the fact that God is sovereign, he's good, he's gracious, he's kind. And really, this should be our priority as his disciples and I pray that you would contemplate these truths and that you would seek to bring him glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you. We thank you for your revelation to us. We thank you for the fact that you have recorded Christ's word hours before the crucifixion. And there's many things there for us to contemplate as your disciples. Help us to honor you in that. And I pray that we would um, submit to your word. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.